This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Rob Tombrella, pastor at Grace Church. I want to welcome you all. We are uh, in, a, in a series in Ecclesiastes, which is uh, two books over from Psalms. If you're new to the Bible, if you're joining us for the very first Sunday uh, together, Ecclesiastes, just go to Psalms, just peel your Bible right in half, and you'll hit Psalms. Go to the right, a couple of chap- a couple of books, and you'll hit this, this book that we've been preaching through called Ecclesiastes. Um, it's uh, presumed to have been written and preached by Solomon. Uh, who self-entitles himself in chapter 1, verse 1, the preacher. And he is going to preach to us today. Uh, We are in chapter 5. We are going to be looking at verses 8 through 20 of chapter 5. Just got back from a mission trip in Haiti. Haiti is a a complex, beautiful uh, country. Uh, Needs our prayers and just had some amazing experiences there. We're going to take some time on a Sunday and share some more. Uh, some more details about that. One thing that I got at the end of the trip that I was kind of in denial for for a couple of days until you finally realize uh, this is the truth is that I got sick. And uh, I hate getting sick. And, um, and, and I'm a, the biggest baby whenever I get sick. Well, I found, and I found myself sick this week and laying in my bed and I did what a lot of people do whenever they get sick is I try to find a good movie to watch. And I'm a sucker for survival movies, you know, against all odds kind of movies. And so I found one movie I've been wanting to see for a long time, and, and I watched it, and, uh, and I'm sick, and, and it starts off pretty dark and depressing and a little disturbing, and then it just uh, it got darker and darker of the movie and more depressing, and I'm getting sick, sicker as I'm watching this, this movie, and I'm just ho- holding out for some hope at the end, and, it, 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 and there's no hope at the end. It just ends, and the credits come on, and don't you hate movies like that? Don't you hate it when you're just holding out for some happy ending, some wrap-up at the end, some the loop to close. Somebody closed the loop for crying out loud, uh, and it never happened. It was just it was just disturbing and dark, and it just left me puzzled and perplexed. Like, I spent two hours. I'll never get that back. Um, I'm sicker now than I was when I started. And so I went to the movie critics, and usually you're supposed to look at the reviews before you watch a movie. Well, I was so disturbed, I went to the reviews afterwards. And here's what one guy wrote about this movie. I won't tell you the name, uh, so you can experience it on your own. Uh, He says this. He says, uh, this movie starts off with the main character putting a gun to his head, having decided his life has no meaning or purpose. After that, the story starts getting depressing. I was like... Spot on, man. This guy gets it. This is exactly what my experience was with this movie. So maybe the redeeming of this movie was I'm sharing it with you guys, and it's going to serve as an intro of, of, of the sermon here. Um, yeah, I'm watching it. At, at the very end, you realize the main character of the show is God. And he's absent from the scene. It's just a lot of strife and meaninglessness and emptiness. And nothing's coming together. And you're just wanting God to show up, but God never shows up. And that's the emptiness of the show. And that's what the preacher all through Ecclesiastes preaches at us again and again in varied ways, in a variety of illustrations. He's preaching at us and saying our stories, just like that movie, is empty without God. It's easy to see when we watch the movie. So I know why that's. Uh, when it's going so bad, it's just they're not trusting in God. You, you can watch a, a TV show or read a book, a, a good book, a fiction book or something like that, and you can say, I understand now why the emptiness exists the way that it does. is because the characters aren't trusting in God. And what's so easy to see in a story that somebody else is living or even a story that we can watch in our friends, our families, our co-workers... We can see so clearly, we can miss so totally in our own lives. So we've all got stories of emptiness. Where we try to live life without God. We try to push God to the margins. 
We believe that he, if he were center stage in our story, would take joy away from us, would take life away from us, would take fullness away from us. So we've tried to push God to the margins. And we've discovered that while we tried to push him to the margins, emptiness came in. The vacuum sucked in. Something happened and it was just emptiness and darkness. And we got caught up in a web of meaninglessness. And that's what the preacher says again and again in Ecclesiastes. Your story is empty without God. But with God, your story can be full. So nothing real real uh, fancy as far as outlines today for verses 18, 8 through 20 of chapter 5 uh, breaks down like this. The emptiness of authorities in verses 8 and 9. The emptiness of wealth in verses 10 through 17. He spends quite a, quite a long time talking about that. And then he turns a corner in verse 18 and he talks about the fullness that comes from God. So the emptiness of authorities, the emptiness of wealth, and the fullness that comes from God. I'm going to go ahead and read it and then pray and we'll get started. Verse 8 says, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps them occupied joy in his heart. Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you'd clear away the cobwebs of our thinking regarding joy, that we would no longer think of joy as something that, uh, that comes from us apart from you, that we would see joy as authored by you, as created by you, as sustained by you, as provided by you, that there is joy no place but in God alone and in the fullness that's found in you. Thank you that, uh, that we're going to hear today from the preacher where joy and fullness of life is found. We ask that you give us ears to hear that. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, let's look at the first section. Verses 8 and 9 talk about the emptiness that comes from authority. We need to hear this because we gravitate to hope in authorities and in governments and in kings and in just getting the right person elected. And I know your guy is always the right guy, right? I know everything will change if we just get your guy or your gal uh, there in that particular place of authority. I get that. But the preacher has uh, some disturbing news, if that's your thinking. He says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. In other words, don't be surprised. Translation, don't be naive. Another way of saying that. Why? For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. You, you would think he would, he would spin it positively, but he actually doesn't. He says, the high official that should be protecting and providing justice, providing righteousness, helping the oppression of the poor, isn't doing it. And guess what? The person who's over him, he's not going to do it either. 
That's that word watched by a higher. I mean, that, is that a positive thing? He says, no, it's not positive. It could be taken one of two negative ways. They either watch to plunder and take advantage of the person over them. So, so the sheriff is plundering you because the governor's plundering him. And that's why the oppression exists. It's systemic, goes straight up to the top. Or they watch cr- like cronyism. They just kind of watch and protect their own. You know, that, that kind of watching. Not watching to serve, not watching to help, not watching to be generous. And, and, and we're told, don't be amazed when we see that. Well, how, how can we not be amazed at that? That's injustice. That's, that's unrighteousness. Should we not be surprised? Should we not be amazed? What does it mean, don't be amazed, when we see the poor oppressed? Doesn't God call us to be amazed? Well, I don't think that the preacher is saying that we should be unaffected by the evil of oppression. After all, God calls us to be affected by the evil of oppression. He has said in Isaiah, Is not this the fast or the worship that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? This is, God is commanding justice. Stand for justice. Stand for truth. Stand for the poor. Stand for the widow. That's what James says, pure and undefiled religion is to visit widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. In other words, there's lots of people in the world that are distressed and they're distressed because of the oppression of high officials, people that are over them. They should be serving, but they're not. They should be protecting, but they're not. They should be providing, but they're not. You can translate this even in the corporate world, in the job world. There are Uh, bosses that should be protecting and helping and they are not they are after their own gain and the oppression trickles down to you at times so I don't think that the, the preacher here is saying be unaffected he's saying don't be naive injustice described here is pervasive it touches everything that's what he's saying here he's already said in Ecclesiastes 3.16 I saw this under the sun, that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. Go figure. I mean, it's almost like Romans 7, where Paul says, even when I try to do good, evil is right there with me. You know what that feels like, right? He says, in the place of righteousness, where there was supposed to be Righteousness, even their wickedness. So the preacher says, concerning your guy, your gal, the school board, the city council, the perfect judge, the, the Senate, the Congress, your HOA. Injustice is pervasive. It touches everything. It touches everywhere because sin touches everyone. Jesus understood this. In John 2, Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, to the high officials of the day, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew the injustice that exists in man. So he's not entrusting himself to their approval, and he is definitely not amazed when they oppress the poor and the weak and violate justice and righteousness. But look at verse 9. There's a little glimmer of hope here. He, he, he gives us a, a change in thought here. Verse 9 says, But this is gained for a land in every way. And just drops a proverb. A king committed to cultivated fields. So yes, there's oppression of the poor. Yes, there's violation of justice and righteousness. However, it doesn't touch everywhere equally. Injustice is pervasive, but it's varying. It's not equally dark in every land and in every province and in every country and in every city. It varies, the injustice does, according to the mercy of God. There are places where kings are committed to cultivated fields 
And where these places exist, the people flourish and they feel protected and they are provided for and they are helped. This is where government is a, is a good thing and we should be grateful for it and pray for it. So marry these two ideas of verse 8 and verse 9. How should we think about the authorities that are over us according to Romans 10 that are gifts from God that we should be grateful for? Well, look, a couple of ways, not just one way. We should be hopeful and grateful. Hopeful because there's a king who is over every authority. That's what verse 9 leaves you wondering. Is there a king that's committed fully to cultivated fields out there somewhere? Because we're always looking at it in the election year. We're always searching for the king that's fully committed. Where is he? Where is she? Can we find him? Well, Daniel 2.21 says he exists over every government authority. And he changes times and seasons. And he removes kings and he sets up kings. He is not concerned about the popular vote of Syria or Egypt or what's happening in North Korea. He sets up kings and he deposes kings at his will and doing. He's the king over every king. He's the authority over every authority. And nothing escapes his eyes. See, kings are oppressing people because they think there's nobody over them. And there is. There is a king over every king. And this king can turn the heart of any earthly king, Proverbs 21.1 says, like a stream of water. Because the king exists in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he will. That's the kind of hope that we take into an election year. God can change anything. God oversees every official, every kingdom, every system that's broken out there. And we should be hopeful in that way. But we should not be naive. There is only one king who will not do injustice and will not do unrighteousness. And that is the king that I've just spoken of. Isaiah spoke of him this way. After every boot of the tramping warrior in battle and every garment is rolled up, it'll be burned as fuel for the fire. Why? Because to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. There will be no end to the increase of his government. And Jesus comes to make it so. He enters into the broken world. He lives righteously and he oppresses nobody. And he says, I am the king that you've been looking for. And I'm ushering in a kingdom like no other I'm not going to do it through a sword. I'm going to do it through a cross. I'm not going to do it killing you. I'm going to do it by being killed by you. And then I'm going to raise on the third day, just like I said, I'm going to ascend on high over my kingdom. And through the church, the kingdom is going to advance through the preaching of the gospel. So you and you and you and you will all know all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me and is exercised through the making of disciples through the church. There is a king that's fully committed, verse 9. But you won't elect them this year. So be hopeful, but let's not be naive. Let's look at the next section, the emptiness that comes from wealth. Having just talked about the authorities and the high officials and a place that we often put our hope in some political leader or some power out there, now he turns to something that's a little more real and he starts to meddle with us. He's going to mess with us, mess with our hearts, mess with our minds a little bit, and he's going to talk about the emptiness that comes from something that you and I all struggle with in varying ways in here, and that's the emptiness of wealth. So if you could just go ahead and 
And let's not put any guards up. Let's not, uh, let's not put any kind of um, you know, helmet on. Uh, this is something that touches all of us and affects all of us because we live in a place of great affluence, even if you don't feel like it. Okay? All right. The emptiness that flows from wealth. Look at verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. What's he mean by vanity? Well, he said it over and over again in Ecclesiastes. It's the waste of time. It's the chasing after wind, he says. It's kind of like a person who just is running around trying to capture something that can't be captured, stick it in a jar under the mattress, and it's his. I mean, if you saw somebody do that with wind, if wind was, you know, the valuable thing, the, 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 the cash crop of our world, you know, and you saw somebody do that, you'd say that guy's stupid and, and foolish. And he says, well, exactly. That's what you and I do when we are trying to find satisfaction with money. It's tragic. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. The, the more you have of money, the less satisfaction you have with it. You want to talk about frustration. That's, that's the definition of frustration. To love something and not be satisfied with it. To, to have affections for something. To be emotionally worked up for something. And for it to let you down again and again and again. I, I, I experience this in a very tiny way whenever I chew, bigly chew. You know what I'm saying? Offers so much hope. It, it's so delightful to the eyes. And you chew it for about a minute. It brings some joy. And then it just brings misery and sadness as it turns in your mouth to a piece of rubber. There you go. You pick your own flavor gum. You pick your own illustration. But that's mine. Uh, if you love it, you're not going to be satisfied with it. Sorry. It's going to let you down. It's going to walk away from you. It's going to be the, the girl you pursued in high school that kept walking away from you. Kept breaking the date. Kept making excuses. Well, that's what satisfaction in money gives you. Nothing. It's frustration. Look at verse 11. When goods increase, note this, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? So the owner has a lot of stuff that's right in front of his eyes. And you think that this would be an advantage. How wonderful to look at all my wealth and all my stuff and the, the things that I've worked so hard for. It's right in front of me. It's in my view. But, but the, the rich can't see it because just beyond what he sees are people coming after his stuff. Creditors and and the bank and everybody wants a, a, a piece of the pie now and friends are now coming around and family are coming around and now expectations are coming around. Now the IRS is coming around. So the more his goods increase, the more they increase those who eat them. And this is what happens when you you inverted, you just become consumed with your stuff. You attract consumers. I mean, it, that's the picture here. This person is a consumer. Money is not currency to other people's joy or other people's help and, and, and to their advantage. Goods are consumed on that person. And when you become a consumer only with what God gives you, you'll attract consumers to yourself. And this is where the anxiety settles in. My friends, truly my friends, do they love me or do they love the money that I have? If you ever ask anybody that is a person of great resource and there are many godly people that are, it can be a temptation at times. It's the anxiety of James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. That's something that we do with our hearts, not just with our hands. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have, he says, because you do not ask. And he doesn't mean ask the person for what you have. I had a, uh, a little boy yesterday at the pool, and we're just kind of sitting there, and he says, Dad, well, yeah, can we just go buy something? No, we're not. We're not just going to go buy something today, buddy. You know, 
But, you know, it's just that idea of, well, I'll just, you know, go buy something. Now, I appreciate what that represents. He, he believes I, I uh, am both generous and I you know, have resources. I, I love that he's coming to me, asking me for stuff. But James is saying that, that this is what we need to do towards God. We need to ask God for things instead of quarreling and fighting and, and experiencing anxiety that comes from the emptiness of wealth. Well, look at verse 12. There's a sleeplessness. He goes on. Sleep is affected. Not only are you frustrated and anxious, but... It touches you as you try to sleep. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Man, isn't that a drag? I mean, he says there's something more than just physical indigestion that's taking place in verse 12. There's a spiritual ulcer-like indigestion that takes place when you live your life as a consumer and being impaled by the promises of consumption. That the more that I get and the more that I consume on myself, the happier I will be or the more life I'll experience or the better my life will be when actually sleep escapes you. I'm all for feasting. And there are actually, I have Bible verses that talk about feasting, and he's actually going to talk about it here in a minute. But do you know that the feasting that takes place over the holidays where you just eat so much, and then you try to go to sleep, and you just toss and turn because you've, you've done nothing all day except watch football and eat a lot of pecan pie. You know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one? Okay. Well, this is that as a lifestyle. You ever had a week like that? Just a big, long week of self-pity. You're just sitting on the couch all week long eating Oreos and trying to find life you know, on TV or something. Well, that's, that's what this guy's life is on, on full, full explosion. Sweetest sleep, he says, of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. So somebody that works and, and labors with his hands, works hard. He gets to sleep well at night. He may not have a lot. He may not have a lot to show his kids. He might not have a lot in the bank, but he sleeps well at night. Not true of the consumer. His stomach is full, but he can't sleep. He can't enjoy what he has. You hear that theme? To have, but to not enjoy what you have. There's something tragic about that, to have something and not to be able to enjoy it. To, to, to want to enjoy it, but you just simply can't enjoy it. You thought it would bring joy, and it just brings a headache and a stomach ache and a lack of sleep. Well, then he starts telling a story in verse 13. He starts to illustrate even further. I mean, as if it can't get more graphic, he's like, let me tell you like a story of what I've seen in my life. You can all relate to his story. Look at verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. So note note that. First off, he keeps the stuff to himself. And you think, well, isn't that going to hurt others? Well, it does hurt others. But the first person hurts is himself. He holds things back. And the owner holds them back to his hurt, to his own hurt. He impales himself and he doesn't even realize it. He brings misery upon himself by holding things back. And it hurts him. Well, note how it hurts him. He, he tries to do some kind of a get-rich-quick scheme. So he heads off to Vegas in verse 14 and loses the money in a bad venture. He doesn't have enough. He wants more. He wants it fast. That's a recipe for disaster. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You didn't feel like you had enough. You wanted more. You wanted it fast. Do anything it takes to get there. Recipe for disaster. Something happened. And it was a bad venture. And some, something negative came from it. Well, in his case, he loses everything. And note what happens. His son comes to him. He's a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. 
In other words, there's nothing to give the son because he's, he's, he's just made, made bad choices. He went to Vegas. But he didn't know that what happens in Vegas comes home. All the way home. It comes home. It came home here. It's come home in your life. Now he has nothing in his hand to give and he's experiencing the heartache. He doesn't even have a good example. At this point, there's no repentance. He has no, no, nothing uh, except heartache and misery. It just spreads further and further. That's the absurdity that comes from the, the wastefulness and the emptiness of, of money. You ever done anything foolish like that with money? I have. I sure have. When I was in high school, my, uh, I experienced uh, not having money in the home and not knowing really what to do about it. I grew up wealthy. I didn't realize I was wealthy at the time until, long story, our family lost uh, our money. Uh, lost a lot of money. And I was right in the middle of high school. I had a lot of wealthy friends. I'm trying to project an image to my friends as pers- a person who still has a lot of money. Uh, like a lot of people do in Frisco, uh, a lot of $30,000 millionaires. And I'm um, trying to project this image out there to my friends, and it's really, uh, really absurd. And my brother and I have a twin brother. We, we resolved to do something at some point in high school. Actually, it was my senior year of high school. And uh, what we resolved to do is make as much money as humanly possible as quickly as we can. Now, that's a recipe for disaster, correct? Well, that's what, that's what happened in our case. Okay, so we were very naive uh, high school students, and so what we decided to do is to go into what we heard was a, a great money-making opportunity, and uh, it was a scheme, it was a setup. And so what we did was we heard these, these tapes of this superfood, uh, these vitamins, and it was like super algae, okay? Um, Anybody ever eat algae? Wouldn't recommend it. Um, well, we were convinced that we could make a ton of money selling this, this super algae. Okay? Now, if you take algae, you know, you don't have to out yourself here. Um, so I'm not trying to dog you. You might get great benefit from it. Um, but we're hearing testimony after testimony how wonderful it is. And we're trying to sell it to our teachers and our friends. And we've told our dad... And, I remember my dad just saying, I don't think that's going to work for you. I mean, he's just words of wisdom coming. And my brother and I were convinced, no way, we are going to make a lot of money. And we're going to help the family out by selling this super algae. Here's the problem with super algae. Didn't work. Wasn't working. We, We would eat it and nothing would happen. And we didn't have the testimonies that we were hearing on the tape. Well, this is a problem when you're trying to sell something like algae. Okay. You need it to work. Uh, so what we decided to do uh, one night was we decided the problem is we're just not eating enough of it. We're just not cons- we haven't eaten enough of it. We just haven't experienced the full effect of this algae. So we made a plan. We're just going to take a night, take all of our product that we're supposed to be selling and pushing, and, and eat as much as we possibly can and then we'll experience these revolutionary effects physically memory and energy and vitality and then we'll have something a testimony to tell people that we're trying to sell the product to make sense okay so yeah right so we 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 did this we consumed as much as we could that night we just ate and ate and ate and it was nasty stuff it was gross stuff still remember the taste of it. I can still taste it in my mouth. Uh, we just consumed this stuff all night long. And here's the problem. You know what we got? Uh, we just kind of sat around just waiting for some energy to happen. Uh, no energy happened. Memory wasn't improved. You know what we did get that night? A lot of gas. Gas. It was a chasing after the wind. Literally. It was Ecclesiastes, man. It was right there. I was experiencing Ecclesiastes. You might have been reading about Ecclesiastes. But in 1995, God was preaching Ecclesiastes to me. 
and talking to me about chasing after the absurd. But you do absurd things with the promises of money, don't you? You've done silly things like this. Maybe right now you're pursuing something that is absurd. We'll look at verse uh, 15. He goes on, he says, As the consumer, as he, the rich man, came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. He says, This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? I mean, that's what he says. I mean, you, you've been to the birthing of your first child or second child or whatever, and you've experienced the kind of the raw reality of a baby coming into the world and kind of naked and screaming and just a big mess. Um, and you know what? He says, you get that picture in your head really, really, really clearly because that's actually how we, how we leave. Somebody's going to get all the stuff that you've accumulated all the stuff that you've worried so much about, all the stuff that you plan for, and, and we should plan. There's other places of Scripture that talk about being good stewards and things like that. But when it comes to anxiety and worry and frustration, guess what? Somebody's going to inherit that. Somebody's going to get it. And you could just be wasteful and just experience the vexation of, of this passage. Look what it says. It says, Verse 17, Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness. And that talks about loneliness. That's a picture of, of, of a lonely person. You say, I don't know any rich people that eat in the dark. If you could see into their souls, you would see something very different. Many wealthy people are lonely people. Many, many consumers are lonely people. Many people who take the funny show Man vs. Food and they adopt that as their lifestyle and say, that's what I'm going to do with everything. I'm going to do that with relationships. I'm going to do that with opportunities. just going to consume and let it terminate on me and see if I can somehow drum up some life out of it. You'll eat in darkness if that's, if that's your lifestyle. And in much vexation, that's a word for frustration. And in sickness and in anger. Man, Drake ain't rapping that. He ain't talking about sickness, anger, darkness, frustration. Who's talking about that? Trump's not talking about that. I never had an economic professor talk to me about that. The people who were trying to sell me the super algae, they sure enough weren't talking about that. Nobody talked to me about toiling after wind. Man, nobody, nobody talks about the temptations of loneliness. It's like the big dark secret. Don't go behind that curtain. We don't want you to see what's behind there. Well, guess what? Here's what's behind there, the preacher says. That's what's there. Paul told Timothy, listen, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. I mean, listen to that. What? What? If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content, he tells Timothy. I mean, it just sounds almost absurd in our culture, just with all the stuff that we think we need to be content. He says, well, if you got food, if you got clothing, guess what? You should be content. But those who desire to be rich, well, I wasn't asking to be rich. I, I just wanted something a little bit more than that food and clothing thing. He says, those who desire to be rich can fall into temptation and into a snare and into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And you've all heard this. You know, it's not money, it's the love of money. Well, that's true. It's systemically there. It's everywhere. It's, that's what it is. It's not just money. It's the love of it. I've seen... People who are consumers and, and consumed with a love of money who had, a, who had very, very little. And I've seen people who were uh, totally generous that had a lot in my life. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving. And it is a craving. Some of you know what it means right now to experience this craving. That some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with pangs. And that's an idea of impalement. 
And there are there are people that you know that got caught up in the web of the promises of money and wealth and prestige. And the more that they moved around in the web, the more they got caught up in the web. And they just impaled themselves again and again. They impaled their marriage. They've impaled the relationships with their kids or people that they work with or their family or their friends. They've isolated themselves in some ways. And we all know stories like that. Maybe you're, you're a story coming out of that. Maybe by God's grace, God's moving you out of that kind of story. And I pray that He is. But just think about the numbers of people in our city. Because guess what? God's actually called us into a city in which many people right now are experiencing what 1 Timothy 6 says. They're ensnared. They're given to senseless and harmful things. They're heading towards ruin and destruction. They're walking wounded. And you would never know it because... They're dressed maybe to the nines or they've got a, the, the latest smartphone or they're driving a great car or they've got a great house and everything seems to be great and perfect. Well, that's what it seems to be. But without recognizing the fact that many, 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 many of those folks are, are wounded by the pangs and the promises of wealth and the emptiness that comes from wealth and we are called... Listen, we are called not to step back from the person caught up in the web and say, man, I'm so sorry you're bleeding to death. I found Jesus and and I'm all good now. Rather, we're called to be people that understand exactly what that guy's going through and experience similar temptations now. And we can go to that person, that family, that guy, that person, that whoever that individual is and go and say I know how to get you out of the web because I was once in that web too I know what frustration anxiety and that sleeplessness and the wastefulness of life feels like because I lived it but Jesus has interrupted my story and he can interrupt yours he can bring life and hope into a very difficult situation in your life I know because he's doing it in my life This is why we want to go to Frisco Square. We're not trying to go to Frisco Square to get a better stage or a better sound system or to sit back and get a little bit more comfortable or something like that. We're going to Frisco Square to lay our lives down for the city because there are many people that are trapped in ruin and destruction and are ensnared. And guess what? We've got hope. We've got truth. We've got life. We've got people. We've got community. The kingdom is advancing through the preaching of the gospel and the lives on display in our church. And that's why we're going to lay our lives down to sacrifice ourselves for the people in our city and not for something else. Well, this is how we're going to close. Verses 18 through 20. The preacher takes a turn and tells us something that at first blush could seem quite paradoxical. Look at verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. You can read that and say, what? Uh, What kind of knee-jerk reaction am I supposed to have here? He's saying what's good and fitting in the midst of oppressive Governments and in the midst of all the dangers that wealth brings, he says, here's what's good and fitting. Eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. Now, how in the world are you supposed to do that? How does someone enjoy what he's just said causes so much misery and so much temptation and so many wounds? How are you supposed to turn around and enjoy it? How can you do something that's good and fitting in the eyes of the Lord and find Enjoyment. Well, he hints at it at the end of verse 18, but he unpacks it in verse 19. Look at verse. Look at the end of 18, because you could miss it if you were just reading too fast. Because note, he says at the end of it, in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. See, this whole time, God has been absent. 
absent from view, absent from perspective. He's just nowhere around as he's talking about the consumer and the greedy. But now God is in focus. Verses 18 through 20, the fullness of God is in focus. And he unpacks it in verse 19. Look, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. So note what has to happen. For us to escape the misery of toil, for us to escape the misery of wealth and the misery of possessions, God has to intervene in our life and do something. He's got to enable something in us that if He doesn't enable, we will impale ourselves on what causes misery. Well, that's exactly what He says. Note, Power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. So how does it happen? How do we escape the misery and find enjoyment? How do we do what's good and fitting? Here's the answer. By the grace of God alone. The grace of God alone. If God doesn't step in and intervene with loving grace and mercy and the display of His character, then we will be miserable people. We will strive after the wind. We will have and never enjoy. Everything in our life will be like a Judas kiss. Promising our allegiance, promising affection, promising love, and kissing us on the cheek and walking away. God's got to intervene by His grace. That's what gift means. This is the gift of God. How does He intervene with His grace? How do we find enjoyment? Well, God gives power. Look at that. Power to enjoy wealth and possessions. That's a miracle of God. God's got to give the power to enjoy wealth and possessions. God is the author of enjoyment. You hear what He's saying? Enjoyment will not take place in your heart. Not real enjoyment. You can redefine that any way that you want. But the enjoyment that the preacher's talking about doesn't happen apart from God. The good and fitting thing before the eyes of God, the only way to be good and fitting in His eyes and to find enjoyment is that the enjoyment has got to come from outside of us, from a source of joy to us. And to interrupt our misery and help us to find enjoyment in something like wealth and possessions. Power from God to enjoy. Power from God, note, to accept your lot. That's talking about contentment. Anybody in here struggle with contentment? I sure do. He says, God gives you power. It's a gift of God to accept your lot, to find contentment. And notice, to rejoice in your toil. You've got to have power for that too. Because so often we want to get away from the toil. I'll find enjoyment once I get around the toil. Let Let me leap over the toil and I'll find enjoyment on the weekend. Well, you ever do that and then find, oh, I'm really enjoying the weekend now. He actually says you can find enjoyment in the toil itself by grace alone, by the power of God alone. So often we get wrapped up in what is sinful to God? Is it, is it sinful to own this thing? Yes, if it owns you and there's no faith in God or no trust in God, if God is absent from the purchase and absent from the enjoyment of the thing. Yeah, maybe you shouldn't have purchased it or maybe you shouldn't own it. Does it lead you to God or does it lead you away from God? That's the test of Romans 14.23. So often we just want to know what's the right decision here. Well, the right decision according to Romans 14 is whatever does not proceed from faith, that is sin. See, it's possible to do any variety of things and be pleasing to God if it flows from faith in God. If it flows from a trust in Him in, in His power to enjoy and to accept and to rejoice in it. But if we do something that doesn't flow from faith, it's impossible, Hebrews says. 
to be pleasing to God. So note this. Verse 20. This is how we're closing. For God... I'm sorry, he talks about the the person who God has given the power to enjoy. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. In other words, he doesn't remember the, the difficulties of the toil and the difficulties of life and all the external challenges that happen in life because God's doing something. God is keeping him occupied with joy in his heart. So note that. Joy comes from God. Do not fall for the trick and the bait of Satan that is as old as this book because it happened in the very first story. God's holding out on you, Satan tells Adam and Eve. God does not want to give you joy. God does not want to give you enjoyment. I want to give you joy. I'm the author and creator of joy, not God. And that's exactly backwards. The shepherds heard it from angels. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And the person of great joy that comes from the God of joy enters into his creation to express and to live out joy, to be filled with the very joy of God and to express that out to a world and to say things, to say things like, I've spoken to you, disciples, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That means overflowing to the brim. You can't contain any more joy. That's my will for you. That's what heaven is. It's a land of pure and unbridled joy of God. He warned them the thief comes to steal. And to kill and destroy your joy and your faith. But I have come that you may have life and have life abundantly and overflowing. It was for the joy that the Lord went to the cross, Hebrews said. It was, he's the God of joy. He preached joy. He lived joy. Joy comes from God and from no other place. I just believe the Lord wants to interrupt our stories here this morning, this afternoon, because you're trying to find joy in a thing, person, situation, and experience, and you're thinking, if I just push God out to the margins, that's when I'll find joy. God's saying, bring me right in the center of it, and I will fill your life with joy. been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.